Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Rabbit. Thank you for joining me for this particular podcast. Now, there is a significant parliamentary committee that does a lot of work across both houses of parliament called the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security. It handles a lot of uh, sensitive issues, whether it's the uh, the threats to Australia that, that come militarily uh, or biotechnology or the emergence of various groups such as uh, whether it be new Islamist type groups or far right groups or generally any kind of extremist groups that threaten security. Now, I've got the privilege of being joined by the chair of that particular committee, Senator James Patterson, the Senator for Victoria. Uh, he's in the middle of a whole heap of interesting inquiries. So rather than me babble on, uh, Senator, thank you for joining me. Tom, thank you for having me. Uh, absolute pleasure. Now, the, the, the committee issued a, a an overview of its recent work. What are the highlights over the past 12 months uh, that you're able to share with people listening to the podcast? Tom, the, the last 12 months of the committee have been among the busiest 12 months the committee has ever had. And that's reflective of the very serious national security environment we are operating in. Uh, it's a very diverse range of issues that the committee has been grappling with. And a very significant amount of that is new legislation that the government has sought to introduce to combat threats to national security, as well as issue-based inquiries that the committee has been conducting into areas of concern for the parliament more generally and the public. Uh, it has spanned uh, issues like foreign interference, uh, whether that's into our universities or more generally into our political system. Uh, terrorism, including the traditional form of terrorism that we've experienced in recent years in Australia of Islamist terrorism, but also newer, faster growing uh, elements of terrorism, uh, for example, a neo-Nazi uh, white nationalist uh, terrorism, uh, to a big focus on cyber security and the very real uh, challenges that Australian businesses uh, and industries are facing from cyber attacks, which are, originate both from criminal elements, but also from state-sponsored elements. And uh, the committee's handed down a number of reports to recommend uh, amendments for existing or new legislation. And before the end of the year, I hope we'll hand down a number more reports making recommendations to government about how to tackle things like foreign interference in your universities uh, and uh, extremism. Let's take uh, foreign interference as an issue that is at the front of mind, given the landscape we're looking at in terms of cybersecurity, cyber attacks, uh, as well as looking at the way in which Australia defends itself, uh, even given the announcement last week of the sort of tripartite, uh, I'd probably call it more a technology and knowledge sharing arrangement with the US and the UK. Mm -hmm. What are the most significant um, areas of concern when it comes to foreign interference that has come across your desk as chair of the committee? Mm. Well, both current and former heads of the of ASIO have publicly said that the level of foreign interference in our democracy is higher than it has ever been, including at the heart of the Cold War. And they've also identified that the primary source of that foreign interference, although, although not the only source, is the Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party. It's a much more difficult, prob difficult problem to tackle than the Cold War was, though, because 
at the heart of the Cold War, Australia was not a major trading partner of the Soviet Union. There wasn't significant cultural exchange between the Soviet Union and Australia. Uh, there wasn't significant numbers of international students. But uh, the now principal source of foreign interference is a country which is deeply enmeshed with Australia, but both in terms of uh, culture, in immigration and students and trade. And so it's a challenge which is much broader. And almost every facet of public life in Australia is touched by it, uh, whether it is our political parties and our parliament, whether it is our universities, whether it is our business sector, um, or more broadly on cultural and sporting exchange, uh, all of these are affected in some way by foreign interference. And so the measures that we need to effectively respond to that and to safeguard our democratic way of life and our, our sovereign decision-making over our own future are much more extensive than what was required during the Cold War. Um, over the last five years, the parliament has introduced and passed on a, on a bipartisan basis, very significant piece of legislation like the Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme, which requires that if you are a foreign government seeking to influence public debate in Australia, that you have to be transparent about it. You have to identify uh, who you are supporting and why you're supporting them. You can't do it covertly. We've banned uh, political political donations to our political parties from foreign entities. Uh, we've done things like ban Huawei from the rollout of our 5G network. And all of these things are about securing our political sovereignty, our digital sovereignty. We've increased scrutiny of foreign investment to ensure that we have retained control over um, our major and critical industries. Now, all of those things have put Australia in a much better position than we were five years ago. And I think we've made enormous progress. There are still some areas that need further progress. We will soon be commencing a review into the Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme. I think it's clear that there are some tweaks necessary to make that work. Uh, our universities remain an area of concern for me and for the committee, uh, because although some of them have done more than others to deal with this threat across the board, it's a very patchy and inconsistent response. And we have to lift that up to the highest level of possible response, uh, because these are not trivial concerns. They're very real concerns. Is part of the problem in the university sector the, the fact that um, the universities have not just been uh, you know, busy hives of you know foreign students, which which is fair enough uh, in a particular climate, but that there's funding that's come to academics and mm. in, sort of institutes from, uh, if not directly from you know, the Chinese government through uh, mm. institutions that operate closely with. Tom, international students and international research cooperation are a critical and welcome element of our higher education sector. We could not operate and we wouldn't have as much um, ingenuity and innovation if we didn't have those things. However, they are they do present some risks and those risks need to be prudently managed. On the international student front, I am concerned that some of our largest universities are excessively dependent on one market for foreign international student income. Uh, it is a, not a diverse enough range of income and that does expose them to financial and other risks. Uh, and on the international research cooperation front, I am concerned that many Australian universities have been naive about the intentions of their counterparts, particularly their Chinese counterparts. And the reason why that is a difficult challenge for them to grapple with is that um, the Chinese Communist Party under Xi Jinping has what's called a civil military fusion philosophy. And what that means is that they seek to gain, uh, they, they seek to gain from civil insights, civil research, military applications. And Xi Jinping's view is that there should be no stone unturned 
in, in giving advantage to the peoples of the Russian army. And that means that things which we might consider to be innocent areas of research that are not directly connected to defence applications, our counterparts in China who are also conducting that research with us have different intentions and they are seeking to use it for, for military means. And so that means we have to be more sceptical and more critical in future and more engage in those partnerships and more aware about what their intentions are because unfortunately there have been some high-profile incidents already where research has been misused. Now, some of that research, for example, the research recently revealed at Curtin University that uh, tried to construct facial recognition databases based on ethnicity, um, the misuse of that technology is is readily apparent. It is so obvious uh, when you've got a Chinese counterpart and they're trying to identify the facial characteristics of weaker people so that they can be more readily identified from CCTV footage. I mean, it should not take uh, much foresight or scepticism to see how that can be misused. But there are other areas of research which do appear more genuinely innocent, but which have really um, uh, troubling potential implications. Technology, it'd be fair to observe though, technology is generally agnostic. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but it, it depends on who's using it. So how do you exactly. how do you weed that out? That, that, that's a really difficult uh, thing to answer because um, sometimes the civilian applications that are evident from this research are, are wonderful um, and enormously benefit and enrich our societies. They make us um, safer or more secure or they allow us to combat environmental problems more easily. And they're great things and we shouldn't deny ourselves the advantages that come from that uh, and we shouldn't close off international research cooperation to do that. Um, but Australian universities should not be cooperating on research with Chinese military researchers or Chinese military universities, and they have been in the past. And uh, that's very unwise and dangerous. One of the elements technology that's featuring prominently across the board, whether it be in terrorism, whether it be in state-based um, uh, uh, digital mischief or to transnational organised crime, is clearly the, the sort of the digital universe that, that we call the World mm. Wide Web, the use of cyber cyber attacks, uh, and also the, the growth in financial crime. What are the things the committees observe that, that are particularly interesting to you about the way in which bad actors use the online mm. online environment? Uh, this is another perfect example of that dilemma that you illustrated before, Tom, which is that um, these technologies have wonderful and completely innocent applications, but they can also be misused for other purposes. So um, anonymizing and uh, encrypted communications is great for privacy and security. And it's actually particularly important if you live in an authorita authoritarian country and you disagree with your government and you want to be able to uh, securely communicate uh, with others in your country or people outside your country uh, to be able to protect yourself from that. Unfortunately, uh, people who are democracy activists uh, in authoritarian countries are not the only ones who use these things. They're also used um, by people uh, who are trying to operate criminal uh, networks, whether that is child exploitation, drug trafficking, arms trade, uh, or, or, or cyber attacks, uh, including um, uh, ransomware technology to try and um, you know, take money from Australian and other businesses, um, as well as terrorists and foreign state actors and others. So it is a difficult uh, challenge for our security agencies and for the parliament to find the right balance here. 
because we do want to uphold the good things about that and privacy is a very important right and, and, and not one to be um, you know, disregarded. Uh, but equally, we don't want to be providing a cloak uh, for people with bad intentions to use those things to allow them to uh, conduct uh, criminal activities that they never would have been able to previously because they didn't have the safety and security of that anonymizing and particularly encrypted technology. So it, that's a real dilemma at the heart of a lot of the committee's inquiries when we look at things uh, like uh, the TOLA legislation, which uh, sought to give access to encrypted communications to our intelligence agencies. Uh, when we look at things like mandatory data retention, um, which sought to give our intelligence and security agencies uh, access to uh, the stored uh, communications of uh, people of interest. And so whenever those powers are sought from the parliament, I think it's very important that we consider both the uh, nefarious uses and the legitimate uses of that technology. And we try and strike a right ba the right balance that protects the, the genuine uh, needs for that technology uh, without allowing criminals to, to misuse it. There is a concern that um, ASIO has expressed in relation to its ability to pierce the digital veil. Mm. Um, and that there are significant difficulties for them. How do you balance that need for ASIO to get access to specific intelligence with the, with the general fear that people might have that there's a wide net that could be thrown out there just to catch mm. the, um, that, that little number of exactly. people that are potentially going to cause a problem? Well, Mike Burgess and his predecessors have publicly talked about this dilemma where it was not that long ago that it was quite easy for ASIO and other agencies to intercept a very significant proportion of communications as part of their investigations into terrorism or other crimes. But with the rise of encrypted app-based communications on mobile phones in particular, the proportion of their cases that are adversely affected by that encryption uh, is is rising rapidly. And I, I, the last update we had was that more than 90% uh, of their investigations are in some way hampered or disrupted by that. Um, so that is a real challenge for them. But equally, we don't want to live in a mass surveillance state. We do not want to live in a state where our security intelligence services are keeping tabs on all citizens uh, and are trampling on all their privacy. So I think it's crucial that when these powers are granted, they are granted with appropriate oversights uh, and that there's appropriate limitations on how they can be used. They should only be used in the pursuit of genuinely serious crimes, uh, like those most serious crimes like terrorism and child exploitation and foreign interference. They shouldn't be used for, for more kind of mundane uh, criminal activity. And one of the concerns that I hold uh, as a result of the passage of the metadata legislation is we saw that, yes, it has been used very successfully by our intelligence and security agencies for its appropriate purpose, but it has also been used by local councils in the pursuit of parking fines, uh, the RSPCA in the pursuit of animal welfare issues, uh, and the Victorian Taxi Directorate in the pursuit of you know, unpaid uh, taxi licence fees. I mean, that was never intended or contemplated by the parliament, and yet it is how it's been used. And so I think we have to revisit those issues and tighten those criteria to make sure that it isn't being misused like that. Um, uh, on that score, does that not highlight the importance of having sunset clauses in legislation, but it, but it is introduced so that revisions are, you know, are, are programmed into the system. There is a deadline at which at legislation like this gets looked at and potentially revised if clauses are used inappropriately. 
I absolutely agree. I'm a very strong supporter of sunset clauses, and it is very common for the committee to recommend that powers that it chooses to grant be sunsetted, because we have to make sure that it's not just set and forget, that these laws aren't just passed and they're never properly re-examined. And having a sunset clause is one of those ways to motivate governments, whatever stripe, whatever political party, that they have to constantly justify and demonstrate the need for these powers, uh, because if they don't come back to the parliament to seek that they be extended, then they expire. And at that point where they come back to the parliament, they have to justify again and demonstrate the need is still there. And I think it's a really good principle generally. I think it could be applied more widely to legislation that uh, we should always have to, legislation by its very nature restricts and regulates and controls and imposes costs and limits freedoms. Uh, and none of it should be just there to sit on the statute books forever without being re-examined. All of it should have to justify itself on an ongoing basis. So it's something I like to see used um, uh, not just for national security legislation, but more widely as well. One of the issues that people who listen to this podcast and have read my material over more than 12 months that I've followed, and you're, you're certainly aware of it, is the um, the more the greater prominence, if I can put it that way, of uh, extremist groups in our society. Mm -hmm. uh, and more the greater visibility that we have of sort of what we would call traditionally far-right groups, and I guess ideologically um, influenced extremists, uh, violent extremists in, in the new terminology. Mm. Um, what are the things that have come up during that inquiry that are of concern to you with somebody looking at the evidence that's being presented? Since 2001, uh, the parliament has granted a very large number of uh, new legislation, new powers to our intelligence and security agencies and to law enforcement as well to combat the Islamist terrorist threat. And we've been very focused on that because since 2001, that has been the predominant threat to life and liberty. And it remains today probably the most potent and capable threat to life and liberty. Um, our terrorism threat level is probable. And if an Australian were to lose their life to a terrorist uh, attack, it is still most likely that it would be an Islamist uh, terrorist attack. However, uh, particularly in the last five years or so, uh, there's no question that the fastest growing threat uh, has been from that uh, neo-Nazi white nationalist white supremacist ideology and ASIO has identified that now approaching 50% of its priority counter-terrorism uh, uh, workload is focused on these ideologically motivated extremists rather than religiously motivated extremists that we have previously dealt with. And so a big question for us as a country is, are all the tools and all the legislation that we passed aimed at dealing with the Islamist terrorist threat, are they fit for purpose for dealing with this threat? Because it is a slightly different threat. I mean, both are motivated by a violent ideology. Both believe that violence is a legitimate tool to achieve political objectives, but their ideologies are different and their methods are different. And and they have different approaches. So, for example, 
uh, Islamist terrorists uh, don't worry too much about whether or not they are captured by Australia's te uh, terrorist listing uh, protocols and frameworks. In fact, um, it is a badge of pride for them to be listed as a terrorist entity, and they, they don't. There's no not much evidence that they seek to avoid being listed as a terrorist entity. Uh, white nationalist neo-Nazi groups are different. Uh, they have a, quite a sophisticated understanding of our law, and they have an ambition not to be caught by that terrorist listing. Uh, framework and they uh, engage in uh, countermeasures to avoid being captured by it. They are very careful with their language. They know how to go quite close up to the line, uh, but fall below that line and they avoid being captured by it. And so that's a different challenge. And we have to think about whether it is fit for purpose uh, in the 21st century in dealing with this different challenge or whether it could be amended uh, or changed in some way to better cater for this new challenge. How concerned are you about the uh, increase in the prominence of these movements on uh, particular social media platforms, given the environment that we have currently with the pandemic? Mm. Uh, we're seeing some elements of that in Victoria uh, at the moment with the sort of construction protests, but that is not the only example that mm. has been, that has unfurled itself over the past few years. Unfortunately, Tom, that the pandemic has accelerated some of the pre-existing trends in this area. And one of the reasons why that's the case is that uh, people are often radicalised online, not only online, but often online, and they often find common cause with others online. And the normal human interaction from seeing your family, going to work, socialising with others, that would normally help disrupt people who are on that pathway and divert them away from that pathway is not happening because in Victoria in particular, but all around Australia and the world, um, people are under extreme uh, lockdown conditions that are taking them away from that normal human interaction that they have, which remind them of uh, you know normal life in the normal world and take them away from this rabbit hole that they can sometimes find themselves down. Uh, so that's that unfortunately accelerated these trends and uh, for some uh, white nationalists in particular, uh, the pandemic has validated the fears that they held, the conspiracies that they had about one world government, about um, uh, the state being out to get them and about the need to rise up against it. And so um, they are pointing to this uh, within their circles as evidence that they were always right. And they are unfortunately recruiting new adherents off the back of these events. And so that that is a very troubling thing indeed. And the, the assessment at the moment is that the organisations that exist in this space, as hateful as they are and as um, disturbing as they are, we don't think that they are actively planning or preparing to undertake terrorist attacks. But what we are worried about is people that may splinter off from them and engage in lone wolf style attacks. And, th and that was what happened in Christchurch at the um, very disturbing mosque shooting, where it was an individual who had been radicalised, who had some association with these other groups, uh, who, who took matters into his own hands, uh, equipped himself with a, with a weapon and did horrific damage. And unfortunately, uh, lone actors, particularly if they are equipped uh, with a weapon, can do horrific damage. Um, thankfully, in Australia, since September 11, we've had no mass casualty terrorist attacks. There has been no 9-11 on Australian soil. Uh, and that's partly because our agencies have done a very good job of disrupting and preventing those attacks. There has been the ambition to uh, cause those attacks, but it is more challenging for a terrorist organisation to do it in a networked way because they need to communicate and, and with each other, and that gives us opportunities to um, identify and prevent them from doing it. But a lone wolf actor uh, only communicating with themselves in their own mind is much harder to, to stop.
when um, do you think, and you may not be able to answer this, uh, I may be being mischievous and even asking you, but when do you believe uh, the, the committee's work on radicalism and extremist groups is likely to, to produce a, a report? It's a fair question, Tom, but I'm, I'm anxious not to preempt my colleagues or um, speak on their behalf because I'm ultimately just one out of 11 members of the committee, even though I'm the chair, and I need their agreement before we report on anything. What I can say in a more general sense is that um, the legislative agenda of the committee has been very busy and we've been focusing on that because a lot of that legislation is time critical and we have a limited opportunity before the end of the year for that legislation to pass if that's what the government seeks to do. The more open-ended policy-based inquiries like extremism and universities are not directly tied to legislation, at least not in an immediate sense. And so um, they have not taken precedence ahead of the legislation. But as we start to get uh, further through that legislative agenda, we hope to be able to report um, uh, on those other kind of more open-ended, broader inquiries. Clouds have a silver lining. Does it mean that there's the fact that um, other legislative inquiries have priority right now permit you to reflect more on contemporary developments in the final report for that particular inquiry on extremism? No, no question. I mean, uh, all, all committee members uh, are watching these events with great interest and very closely, and it will no doubt impact on our thinking uh, when we choose to report on them. Um, uh, we've held extensive uh, public hearings and taken a very significant number of submissions, uh, and we look forward to publishing them uh, soon, uh, along with our final report with recommendations to government. Senator Patterson, uh, I appreciate your time. I know we've been trying to do, do this for some time, but we finally got there. So thank you for joining me, and hopefully we can do so again when uh, when the extremism report uh, is eventually released. Thanks, Tom. It was my pleasure. Thank you.